As the year draws to a close, we look back at some of the big issues of 2021. This interview was among the most popular business podcasts. Take a listen. Mark Girardeau joins us now. Mark, you wrote a brilliant article on natural immunity and whether people who have recovered from COVID-19 should get the vaccine. And the article is thorough and it clearly took a substantial amount of time to write and research. But this is not your profession. You're a strategy consultant. So what is it about this subject that moves you? First of all, I I was always interested in biotech and I I was fortunate enough to be one of the rare people who actually been close to a vaccine, an anti-cancer DNA vaccine here in Paris. It's a wonderful technology. So I had, I had basically a, a pre, a, a crash course in, in immunology before the, before this, this whole started. Uh, it, because it takes a little time to, to, to understand what's going on. Um, after that, I, um, me being a consultant, I've been trained to watch for um, red flags. That's what I've been trained to do. Whenever there's a red flag, um, I tend to wake up at night. So it's at 3 a.m. in the morning, my brain starts in, and um, and it, it, it never it, it's never stopped. Actually, it never stopped. Um, I I was um, I don't know whether it was fortunate or unfortunate enough. My my family and I had COVID the first week of January 2020, so a long time ago, at the very beginning. And when we were moving actually back from Geneva to um, to Paris, at the very moment of the lockdown, which was very practical, as you can imagine. And at the very beginning, I was like uh, everybody else. I thought, I thought, wow, uh, this looks like a very deadly virus. Um, I had told my children, my, I had grown-up children, um, uh, to, to wash their hands, to watch out, you know, it's supposed to kill five or six percent, you know, when you start adding up, it's a lot of friends and family that can go away. Mm-hmm. So I was very careful at the very beginning. And then when I realized that I had had COVID, then that was the first red flag. And at the time I started, you know, like everybody else started, you know, doing models and stuff. And it, it just didn't make sense. I couldn't fit my models into, and I'm pretty good at that. So I couldn't fit anything. It didn't, it was either, we knew it was running very quickly because we had seen the you know the curve of death. But there is no way they could kill a lot of people and run quickly because if I had it, I'm not exactly a 20 year old. So the idea that uh, I had it January 2020 meant that it was already spread in Paris. Mm-hmm. And if it was spread in Paris after Christmas, it meant it had spread you know in China and across the globe. Mm-hmm. And and so I. I paused and I said, okay, so it's not that deadly. There's, you know, there's no way it can be that deadly. So I, I was relieved and I started continuing to investigate. And then really my driver was seeing people who hadn't the capacity or the time or was just terrified by the whole thing. So I decided I'm going to try and, and figure this out. Um, and I've been running ever since. <laughs> Well, you sum up the risks of getting the vaccine for those who have recovered. Can you just outline these risks for me? Well, the first thing that people need to know is vaccines are never trivial. You know, you're tinkering with your immune system. It's a very sophisticated system. It's a beautiful system that's protecting our lives and our, you know, everybody we love. And we're tinkering with it. And you shouldn't tinker with it for something that kills 
Well, today is 0.04%. Okay. Mm. Just makes no sense to take that risk, especially for, you know, most people don't have actually less risk than that. The kids don't have any risk. So that's the first thing is it's a medical procedure. And a lot of people have forget, forgot about that. It's serious. And when you do that at a massive scale, it's dangerous. Some people will die. That's the first point. The second point is the technology is brilliant. Okay, it's a brilliant technology. It comes from cancer. I had known about it way before because they were a competitor of a company I was working at. It's a brilliant technology. But that technology was developed for cancer. It was developed for people who are stage 3 or stage 4 cancer, who have zero chance of survival. You can take risks for that. I think where everybody precipitated, I think where the vaccine, it's not really a question of technology. I mean, even though, of course... There is a problem with the technology, I'll come to it. But as I wrote in the article, the spike protein, we realized, is toxic. It's hyper-inflammatory, and the body reacts very, very aggressively to it. There's several theories about it, but one theory is it holds a bit of code of staphylococcus. Okay? Mm -hmm. Your immune is trained to attack that in a very vigorous fashion. Mm -hmm. So there's a design problem. All of them, they put it in without realizing that it's hyper-inflammatory. That's a design problem. We Probably they didn't know that it was inflammatory at the time. And that's why you take, normally you take a long time to actually, you know, test it and, and do that. But it's extremely inflammatory. Now, there is a third problem, which is tied to the mRNA replication and, and the creation of spike. Okay, so that's specific to both mRNA and DNA. And in the mRNA, at least for the Pfizer one, you know, the data we have from the mouse and that came from the regulatory authorities in Japan uh, shows that in a mouse, it goes to the spleen, it goes to the bone marrow, it goes to the ovaries, and it also goes to the brain. And anybody who has any sense of anything understands that you don't want to be producing spike protein in your brain. Okay, or even in your bone marrow where all your immune system is built. Okay, That's really, I think, and I think Robert Malone, who's one of the founders of, uh, or at least the initiators of the mRNA vaccines, uh, also acknowledged that. If the vaccines had stayed in the muscle, it would have been great because, you know, then if you destroy cells, because your immune system is going to attack every single contaminated cell, people need to understand that, right? In the muscle, it's okay because muscle regenerates, right? When you exercise, you get new muscle, it, it regenerates. But it, that's not, they added PEG and it, it's gone everywhere. And that's a major problem. And notably, there's a major problem for women around ovary. You know, the problem of those spike protein, of the nanoparticles going to the ovaries. That's a question mark. That's a huge question mark. Uh, you know, I, clearly some women I, I've been talking to have been telling me that they're feeling something here. So it means the ovaries maybe are, you know, possibly are filtering. Young men seem to have uh, myocarditis, which can kill you. So it's, there's plenty of things in the vaccine that are question marks. Again, I'm not anti-vax. So you know, I, I think it's fantastic technology. But you have, if you tell me somebody's going to inject it to my children, I will say no in a very, very, very clear way. The risks out are... And when you start looking at some of the data... 
I also think there's also another problem in the design. They designed it in the muscle, which is, as I said, not the right place because the immune system is exquisite. Really, it's it's a beautiful, uh, it's complicated to understand. But one of the things it does, as I explained in the article, is it's very optimized. So the first defense is not, of course, in the muscle because in the muscle, you don't get infected. You need to cut your muscle. It's rare that you cut your muscle. You get infected here. 95% of your respiratory infections are here, and maybe a 5% get here. So the immune system protects you with a two-year resident memory T-cell blockage. It's amazing. You know, evolution is done thing perfectly. So it protects you for two years. And then you have the second degree. Those are the sentinels, basically. And then if ever it penetrates that sentinel, then you start getting, you know, the fever, T-cell, the antibodies uh, kicking in, etc. And a vaccine that would have been here would have been much better. It also, in my view, would be much better for a lot of the, the people who are suffering from severe COVID because the people who are suffering from severe COVID often are immune depleted. And so the reality of it is it's not really that they're lacking the information on what to target. To a certain extent, the older you are, the more you have experience with the disease, right? So your epitope repertoire is very high. It's not that the problem. And that's what the vaccine does. It, it, it acts as if your immune system didn't know about that, which is very, if you're 90 years old, there's a very, very little chance that you haven't met some of it or a big part of it. What elderly or sick people have, they either have a lower reaction, mm-hmm. or they have less T cells, less antibodies, but from the reaction we're seeing, it's not really that the problem. And they also have delayed reaction. That's to me, is really what's happening. There's a beautiful study by a professor of Yale, Professor Iwasaki, says that basically the cells that ring the bell, basically, the alarm bell, they are divided by two to four, which means it's enormous because, you know, in the 3D settings, it's really, it makes a huge difference. It means the delay for the immune alarm to ring and start the reaction is very long. And during that time, the virus grows and it goes much further. I was telling you most of the time it stays here, but if you give the virus a free pass, then it goes you know, much further down. And therefore, what happens is where the reaction starts, it's not the same battlefield. You know, you have a very controlled battlefield here. Maybe you will kill a few nerve cells so you don't taste anything. But fundamentally, nothing serious is, is damaged. Mm-hmm. Now, if you let it go further, uh, some of it will go to the brain, to the heart, to the lungs, everywhere. And especially, you'll get inflammation everywhere, which is what we're seeing with that that thing. So it would be much better to have had a vaccine that prepared that block here. And to a certain extent, that's what you're seeing in Asian countries or very dense countries who have people who have elderly people who probably are saved by that because they have very, very high attack rates above 50, 60% a year. When you, Tokyo, for example, last year, there was this, a serological study that came and it already had like, 
I think it was 8% of the, the people they tested already had antibodies. But during summer, during three months, another 40% were contaminated. So you, just in a few months, Tokyo was contaminated 50%. You see, if you're hit like 60% every year, well, you basically have 80, 90% of the population that has this protection here. It's very dense, so everybody's giving themselves a, a tiny bit of virus. The virus is a bit like, uh, I don't know if you know Tintin. There's this captain that's getting this Band-Aid, and everybody's giving that Band-Aid. So that's exactly what you're seeing, is everybody is probably contaminating each other with a slight, tiny dose, which what it does, it updates the software. And, and that's why Asia, most likely Asia and Africa are not. At least that's my, my theory. I have in my file at least 26 or 7 research that shows autoimmunity, mm-hmm. and it's everywhere. You have it everywhere. You have it in Singapore, in Germany, UK, US, Europe, uh, Canada, Ecuador, everywhere. Mm-hmm. So this autoimmunity is really something that we should, you know, everybody collectively should have known that it was there because it's the elephant in the room. Let me talk about that. It's a very important point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm writing another article right now I was going back to um, this book by Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel. I don't know if you read it. It's very interesting, and it shows how germs have structured our civilization. And notably, when Christopher Columbus and the Spaniards that followed him after that, you know, they basically conquered South America first, America, the Americas. Just in a few years, 95% of the population was decimated by the European virus. 95. Okay. 19 out of 20 people decimated with measles, the flu, and everything. We had been living with animals in a much more denser, more sort of systematic way compared to the Aztecs. And therefore, we had built a repertoire. Viruses had built up. We were immune to it, and they weren't. Okay. The same thing happens when you're breeding chickens, for example. When you're breeding chickens, you have all these new chickens come in, and they're naive from an immunological standpoint. And if you don't vaccinate them, because they're all together like that, they're all going to die because there's a double dimension that two things happen. The first thing that happens, well, if if it's the first time you meet a virus, it's going to take more time for you to react, and therefore you're going to present. If you're not immune, if you're naive, right, if you've never met, so it'll take you a little bit longer to react. So since it takes longer, you're giving an additional chance to to the virus to develop. So you're going to be shedding more virus, okay? If you're the only one in your family in this position, the others will be immune, and it's okay, okay? But if the rest of your family is not immune, they are going to also be very sick. And what you're going to do is everybody's going to cross-contaminate each other with very high doses, right? And you're going to keep doing that, okay? That's what happens. The dose is important, the level of the dose, and then the frequency of the dose. When you're in an environment like a society, like here in Paris, if in 2020 everybody had been naive, it would have been, maybe not like South America, but it would have been, it can be, it could have been a disaster. That's not what we saw, okay? Mm. I made a calculation. There's a difference 2,000 times, okay? So you see the difference. The idea that this virus was novel is a fallacy. That is very clear. I said that a year ago, or over a year ago, actually in May, 
I said that in the, I said that this is killing 0.1% at the time in an article on New York. That's very clear. Otherwise, we would have had that avalanche I'm talking about. So thank God. Okay. So the people thought that's what we were doing. And it's not at all what's happening. That changes everything. That changes everything because it means that, you know, a lot of people were immune. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's why we haven't had that avalanche, that epidemic avalanche. And clearly, some countries are so dense that they have a level of immunity which is 98 or 99%. Now, there is a survey, okay, there's a the study that came out and that basically said that throughout the world, there's about between 80 and 98% cross immunity. Is cross immunity in any way related to herd immunity? No, it's different. No. What's the okay, difference? So the difference is that in January 2020, when we sequenced the, the proteome of SARS-CoV-2, when they came out and they said, well, it's a coronavirus, okay, so mm-hmm. it has this whole chunk of it, which is about 50 to 60% of the, of the code, genetic code, which is from the family. It's the same one. It codes for the, the membrane, it codes for all the same things, right? So if you've had a cold in your life, to your immune system, there's no difference than if you would receive a vaccine, right? The vaccine that companies like Pfizer and Moderna, what they're doing is they're presenting your immune system with 5 to 10% of the genetic code. Mm-hmm. If in the past you've, you've met it, you won't necessarily have met the spike protein, but you will have met 60 to 70%, and in some cases, 96 If you've met SARS-CoV-1, you've met 96% mm. of the code. So you have all these T cells that are ready, and you have some of the antibodies that are ready that will save your life. You might be a bit sick, etc., but you will never die. Okay. You can die from it if you're not immune and if you get a big dose or so, or if you're, if you're basically very, very old and, and, and unfortunately it's the end of your life. Here's the thing. I have a problem with immunologists. I love them. They're basically saying, well, it's not because you have cross-reactive T cells and cross-reactive antibodies that you're not immune. And I dispute that. You know, you have to be logical. If you're saying when there's antibodies that are there for the vaccine and say, well, the vaccine has got to be effective. And then when you find them that are different, they're there and you say it's not going to be effective. There's double standards. Like Fauci is doing the same thing. A lot of people are are saying that. There's no double standard. The immune system is agnostic. It doesn't care. I mean, it doesn't know, you know, It's, it's, it's an elaborate system, but it doesn't have a brain. It doesn't know that it's presented with something that's a vaccine or a cousin of uh, the coronavirus. It's just getting a bit of information that is between 8 to 12 or 15 amino acids. And it says, okay, I recognize that as an enemy. I'm going to destroy all the cells that have that. Simple. Hmm. And it works every time. Okay. And it's working for cancer. Okay. That's that's why people are working on cancer on those uh, universal antigens. That's the elephant in the room. It's important because, and people have been talking about it since the very beginning. You know, the, there was, I remember this Tencent story, this story from uh, Tencent, and they had these 86%, they, they called it phantom contacts. They didn't know where it was coming from. You have this study 
on um, uh, mothers giving birth in New York, where 88% of them were asymptomatics. So what, what are the asymptomatics? It's, you know, it's, they're people who are immune. So this cross immunity, it does two things. It's the elephant in the room, and people have dusted it under the carpet. But it, it is key because it also means it explains the very low death rates. Hmm. It is the reason why you have very low death rate. It also is the reason why some people are asymptomatic and don't uh, zero convert, don't have antibodies. It reminds me to a statement that you made in the article that innocuous reinfections could play a positive public health role. Can you explain that to me in layman's terms? Well, first of all, there is proof of it. I couldn't find the the research um, back when I wanted to to label it. I couldn't find it. But there's a research that I read that showed, for example, that couples with children Hmm. were more asymptomatic than couples without so if you get a, a small dose, you know, there's really, there's been two epidemic, okay? One, which is at home and for me, most people, either let's say, you know, your family, somebody, you have a small child, maybe he's not immune, he's going to get sick very quickly, give it to his parents, his parents are partly immune, maybe they'll be a bit tired because it's winter time, they'll get a little fever, etc. but everything is fine, nothing happens. That's the majority of what happens in the world. And then you have a different setting where you have a micro incarnation of the avalanche that I talked about. And those are the care homes in the hospitals. In the care homes in the hospitals, you have people who are immune depleted. And so they are not, it's not that they're naive, but they're giving space or time to the virus. And so they're going to be shedding very high doses. And they're going to be surrounded by people who are going to do the same thing. So what I was telling you about what happened to the American Indians is happening at a micro level in care homes and hospitals. Because everybody, the real issue is there. And it's really bad because you're giving very, very high doses and very frequently to very weak people. And they don't have the capacity to deal with that. Hmm. Now, what's really interesting, and I've, I've been scratching my head for a very long time on that, <laughs> but I think that's what it is, is how come in Asia, elderly are not dying? That's a good question. Right. And the reality of it is, since they have very high attack rates, they are getting infected by very low doses every other year or every three years. So they keep, they keep having this protection here that I was telling you about that bypasses the delay. It's always there. Basically, it's a sentinel force of T-cells that are there. They don't need to be specialized. They're there. Kill the virus there. And that's a big difference between countries like South Africa and in the part that's not very dense, uh, Europe, U.S., that's not very dense, where we have attack rates of 10 15%, and therefore you only have 20% of the elderly that would be protected. You see the difference? You have 80% of these elderly that wouldn't have that protection. Hmm. That's why I was saying a good vaccine, and we've been talking about it in Panda, the right vaccine should be here. Okay, it should be here to protect the elderly. And then then you would get back to to the main model where people are just exchanging little doses. So this idea of, I've been talking actually to my friends at last year, 
I think the children, it's a major mistake. What you're seeing, if you try to take extrapolating what's happening, is society, we've actually, children are, they come, they're naive. Some of them are getting uh, immunized every year. And after every year, there's a growing number of them who are immunized. You get to 20 years old, almost everybody has caught a cold in their lives. And basically what this does is the more that happens, the less the elderly at the end will be put in danger. You actually want this to be shared as much as possible. In fact, we did the contrary, we need it long-term. Mm. What you need is people to have it in low dose as much as possible. And therefore, you're, so I think the children protect the grandparents, contrary to the other ones. They, you know, my daughter had COVID. Mm. She had a night of fever. You know, my wife had two weeks of fever. I had two days of fever. She killed it in one day. And it's been proven they, the children have much, much smaller doses. So it's better if a grandma kisses her child, she gets a small dose. She'll be able to mm. deal with it. And in other so, words, it would make more sense to allow children to continue with their daily lives, trusting that their immune systems can actually protect them and that it has positive repercussions for the general population. You know, elderly, when they're not living all together, mm. most of them did, did fine. Mm. You know, I, my mentor is 83 years old. He and his wife caught COVID and they were well. This dynamics, and I think Panda has been pushing that for that also, is a much more focused approach on where really we need to act. And clearly, we've bundled together this whole thing, but the reality of it across the globe 90% of the deaths comes from hospitals and home cares. Hmm. Right. And therefore, it's not only the lockdown problem, the vaccine generalization, etc. That's wrong. That's wrong. It needs to be focused on people who have issues. Um, and it's the elderly, for sure, the elderly and the sick. The phrase vaccine race was a red flag for me. And there have been many suggestions that very, you know, critical phases of standard vaccine efficacy trials have been missed. Do you think there's any truth to this? Unfortunately, yes. That's my personal, that's not, certainly not Panda's perspective. I, I can't talk for Panda on that. My perspective on mm. that is, of course, and it's there. It's, there's been the, the animal trials have been, and the, for, for, uh, what is called PKA is, is, hasn't been done as much as it should have. It would, the toxicology of, of the spike should have been detected. It should have been detected way before we rushed mm -hmm. into it. I think vaccines are wonderful technology. They need to be, as any medical intervention, they need to be focused and used in the right way. There is a trade-off. There are cost-benefit analysis to be done. Personally, I think there, the younger population absolutely don't need it. But I think fundamentally... Mm -hmm. The technology is wrong, as I said. And also, they should have worked on the toxicity of the spike. Of course, the spike is very antigenic, so it's, it's important that you build the immune system against it. But fundamentally, there's, they, it would have taken some more time to understand which bit of code needs to be taken out. And that, they didn't have time to do it. For sure, the race is not a good idea. I, mm. You know, to tell you the truth, having worked on the cancer side, mm. seeing how demanding the authorities have been or are to some of those companies that have solutions for people who are in stage four cancer, who are going to die. They still impose crazy, you know, very, very 
stringent regulation. And I know because I, I, I've worked in it. And then you look at what they're doing for this. It's like, it's completely, I mean, it's, there, there is something wrong here. Time will tell what happened. I mentioned earlier that there are various theories about, you know, what is necessary to actually achieve herd immunity. What do you think the most accurate conclusion is that can be drawn about what it takes to achieve herd immunity? I think we've achieved herd immunity a long time ago. But wouldn't that undermine or diminish the need for such serious vaccination measures? First, if you believe in cross immunity, first of all, a big chunk of it means that, you know, mm. in France, even in France, the Minister of Health said last summer, last summer, okay, mm. a year ago, he said there's 85% asymptomatic. If you translate that, that means 85% of the population was immune. So it's not a problem of herd immunity. We agree, because if you get, if you take the concept of herd immunity and you have 85% of the population is immune, you don't have a problem. Mm-hmm. And actually, I ran, the da- I ran the data. People are going to hate me if I say that, but I ran the data. And you, you, can, only, you can only get that when you, you incorporate people aging, and people losing that immunity or becoming immunosenescent. What we have is people immunosenescent or immunodeprived. How does that play into the whole fallacy that immunity that recovered people have? Most people believe that that wanes after a few months. Why is this a fallacy? I make three points in my article. The first one the Spanish flu or the 19... There's a lady from Spain that said we shouldn't be saying Spanish flu. It's the 1918 flu. Uh, So the 1918 flu in in 2008, there were people who were 90 years old who were tested and they found T cells. So exactly what I was telling you. The longer you live, the more you have experience. You stack Mm -hmm. up the experience. You get stacked up into your DNA, into your the, the DNA of your immune cells, it stays there. The thing that goes away is wrong. Then there's this other example from SARS-1, mm. okay? And they also last year tested people who had had SARS-1 and 17 years later also had antibodies and T-cells, okay? Mm. So there's no question. The problem is not, you know, do you forget about those targets? You don't forget. They're built into your DNA, okay? They're built into the DNA of your immune cells. Mm. That's how it works. So it don't, doesn't disappear. The problem is your immune system ages. Okay? So it's less potent, slower, there's some lags, and that's the issue. And that's not a problem that everybody has. Right? Thank God, because if, then we would be in trouble. So herd immunity is a rabbit hole. We've had the work. No, no, but if, let's, let's be clear. You know, I think this herd immunity is... is People view immunity as zero, you know, two binary. Zero, you're immune, or you're not immune. Mm. That's not true. That's not, that's not how it works. It's not Star Trek. You know, it's not a shield. Put on the shield, and you're done. Well, first of all, for the immune system to start, the virus needs to enter. It needs to start infected at least one cell. It might get killed off immediately, okay? But you still were infected. Whatever you want, people. So the immune system also, you know, during, depending on the season, the sun, etc. We're ready to fight, or we're less ready to fight, etc. So it's it's like that. So herd immunity is a very interesting concept mm-hmm. when you're thinking naive. 
when you're thinking that the that everybody is naive, when you're talking about American Indians, okay, that's a very again my statement, and that's my personal statement. That's not Paul, but that's my personal statement. Is from everything I know about this virus, and I've read a lot. We're not naive to this virus. We knew him. Uh, our immune system had met a big chunk of it. Hmm. There's tons of articles. That was my assumption. I wrote immediately in New York. I called it a mild immunity, or it, it had to. It had to be immunity. There's no, you know, there's no miracle. You know, hmm. unfortunately, you know, I wish, but it's, there's no miracle. Immunity is the most important driver of this thing. It is. Everybody has it. To a certain extent, it's the most potent. So, if half of the population didn't die, it means that the immune system knew what it was doing and did it well. And just when you refer to immunity in this regard, do you mean vaccine-induced immunity as well as natural immunity? No, I'm talking about natural. It's natural immunity. immunity. Okay. There's an article that says that found 80 to 98 percent of the people had cross immunity. 80 to 98 percent. I actually modeled it. It's very simple to model. Because for every density, every year you get, you basically get the same attack rates. You know, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, etc. But fundamentally, it's statistics, it's math. You know, in, in France, I don't know, I think it's 11%. In England, it might be 8 or 9%. In Germany, it probably is a bit more because they're a bit denser. And you go to China, it's probably 50 or 60%. When you calculate, you can calculate with Excel and if you take an age pyramid mm-hmm. and you basically say, well, this class age is whatever, 25. I'm going to just calculate how, how many of those are immune, right? And it, it goes very, very quickly. And so actually that's the way I found it was with SARS serology in Korea. It was very interesting. You had the kids between 0 and 10, they were hit 50%. And then the teens were hit 25%. That was like, interesting. And then the 20 to 30, they're hit a bit less. So it was decreasing. Basically, you know, the susceptible were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, but the attack rate was 50%. It's math. It's not rocket science. And when you plot, you plot it on the world, you plot the densities, what you have is Norway and Finland they don't have death because they don't meet. They're very, you know, everybody's living very, you know, they're, they're, so they're not really falling sick. Mm-hmm. Then you have Europe, uh, Belgium, South Africa, who are not very, who are not very dense or mediumly dense. And then at one point, the cross immunity starts to kick in mm-hmm. and it falls back. And everybody who has got cross immunity to above 3,000 inhabitants per kilometer, per square kilometer, nobody dies. So... Your article concludes that natural immunity is superior to vaccine-induced immunity. Is this only in respect of people that have recovered from COVID? Um, good question. Good question. I, um, at least for the flu, I'd, I'd say yes. Uh, for respiratory disease, I would say yes. For COVID-19, uh, autoimmunity exists. They call it cross-reactive T-cells and cross-reactive antibodies. Mm-hmm. I call it cross-immunity, okay? It's, it's, okay. I don't you have it, it helps. Sometimes you, you might not have enough because the dose is too big, but fundamentally it helps, okay? Mm. There was a, a study, and we know that, 
Okay, we knew that for the flu. The flu is the same thing. Okay, we are not naive to the flu. People are not dying every year with a flu. When the flu is circulating, so the flu is the same. It's changing a bit, but it's got a big stagnant state. La Hoya Institute of Immunology had done for H1N1, they had done exactly the same study. They had looked if they found cross-reactive T-cells and antibodies pre-existing to H1N1, and they did find it. So that's exactly what I'm telling you. The immune system is agnostic. It doesn't care if it's the flu or H1 or the flu or coronavirus. It's a platform. It does it exactly the same way. There's no difference. You, you, you see my point? That here I'm consistent.